You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. My mom was a teacher. She's a number of years now retired. And I remember um, when I used to, you know, sometimes you take what your parents do for granted. And uh, I never, never really appreciated what my mom did as a teacher until I myself got in the classroom had the opportunity to substitute teach for one of her classes. Or, and uh, and uh, I remember thinking, man, I don't know how she put up with all these high school punks. <laughs> like some of you were, <laughs> right? Like I was, right? And, um, and there comes a moment in your adult life where you kind of stand back and you look at your mom and you go, that is just awesome. Like, I don't mean that as cliche. I mean, like, I am filled with awe and wonder at what my mom was able to do all these years. And putting up and, you know, um, teaching kids that are so immature and all that. And you know what? Um, I'm sure you can look back at your experience and look at your mom and all she went through and go, awesome, I'm full of awe and wonder at what you do. Uh, Here's why I say that is because we need to constantly be experiencing awe and wonder, okay? Um, Some people, some social scientists have said that wonder is actually critical to your growth and maturity. It's like social scientists have found that when people experience awe and wonder, that they actually feel more empathetic and more connected with others. In fact, one one of these social scientists said that, and I quote, wonder, watch this, pulls us together, a counterforce to all that seems to be tearing us apart. There's so much in this world that tears us apart, right? But he says wonder, actually, when you experience wonder, it pulls us back together. Um, A few weeks ago, I was with a, a young guy from our church, and I took him out over here to the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Have any of you ever been to Terranea, the resort over there? and got those nice little trails that kind of take you down to the, the private beach there. Or it's actually not private. It's public, but it's hidden. But not as hidden anymore because I just told you about it. But um, anyway, I took him down there, and as we were walking down there, we were about, you know, we're just a little small little cliff right there by the, just the ocean, and the water is literally, I don't know, it's just maybe a few feet away. And as we're sitting there... You know, looking out in the ocean, we're talking about, you know, God and life and faith, and we're, I'm just, like, discipling this guy. And all of a sudden, there's a, this, I don't know what, it, I guess it's a gray whale, baby gray whale, so probably as big as this pew up here, just breaks the surface, and you just see him go, and, you know, spew the water out and all that. I'm like, what is that? Like, dude, check it out. And, of course, the protocol when you see a whale is you shout, whale, right? Because everyone in the vicinity, why is that? Because you want everyone in the vicinity to know that they're about to have a wonderful experience. And so I go, whale, whale. (laughs) And there are these older ladies walking down the trail. They had no clue that there was a gray whale, baby gray whale, just about 150 feet from the shore. And just boom. And and these these ladies go, oh, look at, look at, look at, look at. And they suddenly, oh, look at. And then you could see him talking. And then after the experience, of, it was like maybe three or four minutes, we were just going, whoa, this is awesome. 
these ladies went, they turned back at me and they said, thank you so much. And like, we, we felt like we were one community, you know, in that moment. Because wonder brings us together, doesn't it? It, it pulls us together when the world seems to be falling apart. In the midst of the human tragedy and the tragedy of human history, something wonderful has happened at the very heart of reality. Life has conquered death. The unquenchable, unequaled, unrivaled life of God in Christ Jesus has broken and destroyed the cycle of sin and death. And in the middle of this fallen apart world, the wonder of the resurrection, say the wonder of the resurrection. The wonder of the resurrection has the power to pull us back together. And it interrupts the, the lives of Jesus' disciples when it first happens. And I, I want to I focus this particular message on an experience that one of Jesus' disciples has, happens to be a woman. Uh, her name is Mary Magdalene. And uh, Matthew in his gospel calls her the other Mary. Uh, and we don't know a whole lot about her. I'll tell you a little bit about her in a second. But we do know that uh, it's very likely that Mary came from this town of, called Magdala. And um, I want to read this to you from the gospel account of, of John. And it says here, on the first day early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter. So Mary gets to the tomb, and instead of looking inside the tomb, she immediately she sees that the stone is rolled away, and she, and she makes an assumption about what's happened, and she turns around and she runs back to where she came from. Okay, that's, that's an interesting point. But she goes to Simon Peter and the other disciple. In this case, that other disciple is John, the writer here. The one Jesus loved and said, hey, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Okay, so John is the only gospel writer that records Mary coming alone to the tomb. What we know from the other gospels is that Mary is actually not alone. She's with other women. And they've come to do this thing that they do back then because uh, they didn't have all the technology we have today. But they've come to embalm the body. They've come to preserve the body of Jesus. Now, Mary, this Magdalene, this Mary Magdalene, what we know about her in the Gospels is at least two things. The first thing is this. She had a tormented past life. Like she was messed up. And uh, her life was out of control. She had at least seven demons in her. And Jesus set her free from that demonic oppression. You know, nowadays, we might not call it demonic oppression, although it probably would be, but we'd call it, you know, she just lost her mind. Uh, her life was just falling apart, spinning out of control. She was crazy, right? But Jesus set her free. So we know this woman who had a tormented past was, had been freed by Jesus. We also know that Mary was probably a wealthy woman. We don't know how she made her money, but she was a woman of considerable means because her and other women, um, in response to what Jesus had done to the, in their lives, had uh, committed themselves to support Jesus' ministry financially. So we know those two things. And when she comes to the tomb that morning very early, listen, she comes for the purpose 
of preserving. She, she jumps to a logical conclusion, which I'll share with you in, in a bit. But, but she's come there to preserve the body of Jesus because she's lost Jesus. She's, she thinks Jesus is dead. And so the least I can do to honor my, my Savior, to honor the one who set me free, the least I can do is preserve his body. So let me put it this way. Mary is stuck in preservation mode. What she thought would be the good and bright and hopeful future is now gone. The Messiah is dead. Our hopes of the future he promised us have died as well. And all that is left for me to do is to preserve the past, to maintain all that is left of his remains. Mary's mentality at this point is maintain it, say maintain it, it. protect it, it. preserve the past. Listen, no matter what stage of life we're in, we all have this tendency. And it's not inherently bad to want to preserve and maintain something of the past, especially if the past is a good and rewarding thing. It's not wrong to want to preserve and maintain the things that we've been given as a trust in life, right? We need to maintain meaningful relationships. We need to maintain rewarding activities. We need to maintain good disciplines in our life and healthy routines, right? We get that. The problem here is when we misinterpret something that needs, watch this, to be propagated for something that needs to be preserved. In other words, We put all of our efforts into preservation when the thing that we're trying to preserve is actually something that must be propagated or multiplied or reproduced. That makes sense? The problem is when we fearfully guard what is actually supposed to be freely given. You're guarding something that that was made to be given away. That's the problem. Um, There was a movie I watched few weeks ago called The Founder. Anybody off watch that movie? Okay. It's a very interesting movie. It's the, the, the true-to-life story of how McDonald's got started. You, anyone know this story? You guys thought that McDonald's just kind of happened, right? Mc, McDonald's actually began in San Bernardino, the very first restaurant. And this is all in the movie, so you can, you can watch it. But I'm going to give you the, the whole, I'll spoil it for you, right? So... <laughs> That's what, that's what I do at this pulpit. I spoil movies for you. Um, McDonald's began by these two brothers, the McDonald brothers, duh. And they came up with an amazing recipe for a burger. But not only did they come up with the main recipe, they figured out how to produce a hamburger, french fries, and milkshake within 30 seconds of the person ordering it. They were the beginning of what we now call fast food. No one understood that concept back then. In fact, back then, I think it was like the 50s in America, right? Um, you would have to drive up. Anyone ever, everyone, anyone ever watch Happy Days? Okay, ha- Happy Day. Monday, Tuesday, Happy Day. Oh, my Lord, I can't believe I just remembered that. Hey, right? Uh, those of you who grew up in that era, respect, respect. So... Back then, you just drove up in your 57 Chevy or whatever it was, and, and the, the, the lady skated out to you, 
took your order, right? And skated back to the, the restaurant. And then, then they, they brought a tray out and they put it on the side of your window. And you just sat there and you ate your meal from the side of your, of your car window. That was how it was, okay? And, of course, you know, it took super long. They always got your order wrong and all that, right? McDonald brothers would figure out a system. They worked it all out on a tennis court. How to, to flow in the creation of burgers, french fries, and milkshakes. And they got it down to a science. 30 seconds after your order. They would have your food ready, and it was the best, one of the best-tasting burgers. And the fast food concept was then born. Well, these McDonald brothers, the problem they had was they sat on that idea. They tried and experimented with uh, creating other branches of McDonald's, but little setbacks kind of just uh, discouraged them, and they decided, no, we're just going to preserve this little secret that we've got going on right here in San Bernardino. It took another guy by the name of Ray Kroc who saw what they were doing and he had this vision to see McDonald's franchised all over the country. And so and he wasn't the nicest guy. He wasn't the most gracious guy. He was kind of a, I don't know, maybe you, could, you might say he was kind of a con artist. But he had a, he had a, a sincere vision. He saw potential. He saw, he saw that McDonald's was not just supposed to be one branch. It was supposed to be multiplied all over the nation and maybe even all over the world. So Ray Kroc, in his own sort of in, uh, maybe devious kind of way, <laughs> uh, the long story short was he pulled the rug out from under the McDonald brothers and ended up buying them out so that the McDonald's corporation was created and he was the sole proprietor. And he made billions, millions, and gave it away, but... The point I'm trying to make is that the McDonald brothers missed their opportunity to participate in the larger vision that was inherent within what they had created because they were stuck in preservation mode. They were, here, let me say it this way, they idolized the past. They idolized the past. Okay? It's one thing to remember the past and to remember the good things about the past, but to idolize the past at the expense of vision for the future, is not where you want to be. The resurrection challenges this tendency in us to live in the past and even to idolize the past because the resurrection moves us forward and gives us a picture of the God-ordained future. You see? And so I want to tell you this morning, Stop trying to preserve and hide what God meant and purposed to be reproduced and propagated and multiplied. What are those things? Your talents, your gifts, your blessings, the things God's given you to steward, the wonderful family life that some of you guys enjoy. All of that was not just meant for you to enjoy and consume. It was meant to be reproduced and multiplied and given away. The resurrection challenges our tendency to take all these good things in our life and to keep it for ourselves and to propagate ourselves and to preserve ourselves. The resurrection says, no, God's future has now come in this present age and you can live forward into that future by giving your life away. So that's the kingdom. And here's the cool thing. We realize 
that when we move into a different mode and we start to give away the things that were really meant to be given away, we discover that we're actually preserving it. The best way to preserve something great from the past is to propagate it, is to give it away, is to reproduce it. Because when you sit on it, just like that man with one talent, it goes nowhere. God wants us to steward what we've been given well and to give that stuff away, not to get stuck in the past. I see so many people, especially in church, uh, there's a lot of good things that churches have to preserve and we need to preserve. And we need to preserve them in ways that are redemptive and meaningful. But I sometimes see something else happen in churches where uh, we cling to certain things of the past and we do so, it's like, um, it's like those old wineskins. It's like God wants to bring new wine, but he can't pour them into old wineskins. Now, you've got to preserve the old wine, right? Because old wine tastes better, but not at the expense of losing the new wine. God wants to bring new wine into your life. I'm not, I'm not talking literally, okay? Figuratively speaking, God wants to bring some freshness, the, the, the fresh move of his spirit in your life, in our church. He wants to bring a fresh move. But in order to receive that fresh move, we've got to remember the past in the right way. We can't idolize what has already happened and what is done. We, we, re, we remember it in a good way. We honor the good parts and redemptive parts of it. And then we prepare ourselves like new wineskins to receive the fresh wind of the Spirit, the fresh wine of God's outpouring. I'm looking at you young people sitting here in the pew, and it reminds me of when I was your age, I experienced a fresh move of God when I was 16 years old. How old are you? 16? Anyone 16 in that? Okay. So I want to say the Holy Spirit is pouring himself out even today as, as messed up as our youth culture can be. And you know it because you go to high school. <laughs> He's nodding at me. There's a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God that he wants to pour out on you guys. And listen, it's not just the young people's job to create the new wineskins. It's our job. It's our job to build the new wineskin, to remember the past in a good way, but to not idolize it and to say, God, what new thing do we need to make room for in the life of our congregation? so that the fresh outpouring of the Spirit can happen on the young people and on the women and on the men and on the older people as well. Amen. If the young people get it, let me tell you something, older folks, you're going to get it too. All right, so how do we move into this? How do we actually step into the new activity God is doing and start creating these wineskins? One of the things I think we should do, and I'm drawing this from what I see in the text here, is we need to question our current assumptions about God's activity. Here, Mary is stuck in preservation mode, but she makes an assumption. What's the assumption that she makes? She gets to the tomb. There she is right there. There's Mary Magdalene. She gets to the tomb. The stone is rolled away, and what? She doesn't even look inside yet. What is she thinking? She's thinking someone stole the body. She makes an incorrect assumption. Now, it's, it's fascinating when you think about it because 
she's the only Christ follower that makes that assumption. The only other people that make that assumption are Jesus' enemies. In fact, Jesus' enemies were trying, to, were trying to prepare things and trying to create a story that they could spin just in case. Because they heard all of Jesus' predictions. This is the fascinating thing in the Gospels. Jesus' own disciples did not understand what he was saying, but Jesus' enemies did. They took his prediction that he would die and rise again seriously... And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these rulers of the religious establishment got together after Jesus had been crucified, they got together and they said, listen, we remember he predicted he would rise again. We don't think that's actually going to happen. What we think is going to happen is Jesus' disciples are going to steal the body. So they told the Roman guards, listen, we're going to put you guys, you better stand guard, you better make sure nobody steals the body. Well, guess what happened? Jesus rose again. Roman's guard, Roman guards wet their pants. They, they were scared, and they ran back going, I don't know what happened. The angel, the, the, the stone was rolled away, the light. I, and we were freaking out. And then what, what did the religious leaders tell them to say? They said, okay, 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 calm down. Here's the story you're going to spin. You're going to say, when they ask you what happened, that Jesus' disciples came during the night while you were sleeping, and they stole the body. And we're going to circulate that false narrative all throughout this society. Mary, interestingly enough, was thinking the same thing. In fact, she was probably thinking it from a more personal standpoint. She was thinking, I knew Jesus. He was so, I was so devoted to Jesus, somebody stole him away from me. For Mary, it was personal. Have you ever, anyone here ever been robbed? Don't raise your hand. It sucks to be robbed. We've lived in Los Angeles, Cerritos, Norwalk, and Palos Verdes. And at three or four, three of four of those locations, we've, as a family, have been burglarized. It don't matter where you live. It's possible anywhere you go, all right? So don't, don't believe that whole thing of safety if you think you're in a safe neighborhood. Happens everywhere. But man, it sucks to be robbed. You walk in, you see everything strewn out on the floor, and you wonder, did, you know, my parents forget to clean the house? No, because everything's, like, turned upside down. The, the most traumatic one for me was when I was in high school. Or actually, I was in seminary. I was, we lived in Cerritos with my parents at the time. And somebody stole my, my laptop computer and some of my music. That was all they took, my laptop computer and some of my music. I don't know what they wanted with it. But it, I was so angry because on that laptop computer were all my final projects for that, for that quarter. And you know how that feels. I had been working on this for 10 weeks, and I was about to turn it in. And on the weekend, before all those papers were due, they stole my computer. I couldn't, I was raging inside. I got, then I got depressed. You know, I went through all the stages of grief because I lost something. It sucks to be robbed. I wonder if Mary felt that way about Jesus' body being gone. She felt violated. She felt downcast. She felt despondent, distressed, discouraged, on the edge of despair. But watch this, watch this. Isn't it interesting how you can have all these negative feelings based on a wrong assumption? She built, those feelings can't, don't believe and trust every negative feeling that you have, folks. 
Because those feelings are based on the way you're thinking. You can write that one down. When you have these assumptions and thoughts spinning in your head, there's certain feelings that will come up based on those. So what you got to do when you're experiencing negative emotions is, first of all, don't deny the emotions, right? Feel the feeling. But then ask yourself, what thoughts am I believing that are driving these feelings? And then test the thought, right? We do this, I think, with God, especially with God. I have a friend who in the past would tell me, <laughs> I, I think I've shared this before, but it's comical to me now when I think about it. It was sad back then when I'd hear him say it. But he'd, he'd sometimes just be venting it to me, and he would say things like, I'm cursed, Pastor. I'm like, why are you cursed, man? Why are you cursed? He's like, I'm cursed because I'm, I'm, I'm married to this woman. That's what he would say. In so many words, okay, I'm paraphrasing. But, but then he would tell me, you know, whatever. She nags me. She, she criticizes me all the time. You know, she makes me do, it's like she sabotages decisions that I make and try to be the man of the house, but I can't be because she's always doing this and undercutting me and, you know, talking bad about me to the kids and all that. I am cursed. <laughs> all right, let's, um, let's leave that arena and let's put it in a different arena. Have you ever um, had a really bad day? Like as in you woke up and just everything that could go wrong went wrong. And like in active succession. You know, you found out, you went to work for the review and it was a bad review. And then on your way home, right, there was traffic on a street that there's not normally any traffic in. And then just when you're about to get to your destination, some person behind you is texting on their cell phone. Boom, right? The last thing you needed was an accident. And I've heard people go through bad days and at the end of the day say things just like my friend. I am cursed. Something I must have done wrong to deserve this. Like, God, what did I forget to do for you this week? Follow me now, okay? Because I know some of you think like this. I didn't go to church. I didn't give my tithes. Come on. I snapped at my kids. And I, I, I didn't go to life group. So, therefore, God is, <laughs> is punishing me. Come on. Now watch. That, my friends, is superstitious thinking. That is assuming that if I just do the right things, work the right magic, I can get God to keep my life comfortable. I can get God to give me safety and protection. I can get God to bless me if I just have the right combination of good things that I do for him. You see? And it's very easy. It's superstitious because superstition assumes that you can control these forces in the universe by something that you do, some little magic thing that you do, some little, I mean, whatever, right? Just think about all the superstitions. Some of you who grew up in the Philippines or some in the third world, you live with this stuff, right? 
I, I remember telling the story of how my wife had this superstitious thought in her head. Years and years ago, actually the first year we got married, she wouldn't sleep on the side of the bed that was closest to the door. Why is that? Because there was this superstition that she grew up with that said, if you sleep on the side of the bed that's closest to the door, you or somebody you love is going to die. So she would never sleep on the left. At the time, the door was on. She wouldn't sleep on this side. She'd sleep on the right side. And every time I wanted to sleep on the right side, she'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> For like a whole year. I couldn't figure it out. It was a mystery. <laughs> then I realized, you know what? How saved are you? <laughs> Just kidding. No, I said like, you know what? You've been living with the law. Watch this. She was saved, but she had a wrong assumption about how God works. She had a wrong assumption about the, how the way the world works. I don't believe any of that stuff. But is it real? Absolutely. It's real in your head. And the enemy takes advantage of it and puts fear into your life. If I don't pay my tithes, if I don't go to life group, if I don't do this, I'm going to get cursed. Or let's do a softer word. I'm going to get punished by God. I'm not going to get blessed. Superstitious thinking. Stop it. God is not cursing you. God became a curse for you. On the cross, I like what Pastor John said about it in one of his writings. He said, God outcursed the curse on the cross. <laughs> he outcursed every curse. So you're not cursed. My Bible says you're actually blessed. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realm, says Ephesians 1. So you can live like you are a child of blessing, even when it seems like things aren't going your way. Don't interpret it that God is somehow punishing you. God loves you. God wants to teach you something. God is looking for you to seek him in those mysterious moments of life when you're wondering, what did I do to cause that to happen? Maybe you did nothing. Did you know sometimes bad things happen even when you obey God? We want to treat God like a big vending machine in the sky. It doesn't work like that. He will not be manipulated. He will not be controlled like that. He is wild, and he is free, and he is good. We respect this holy God, and we say, what is it you want? And this holy God has come in Christ and has invaded our present day with a future blessing called the resurrection that should cause us to drop our jaws in wonder and go, what does this mean now? I'll tell you what the resurrection means for some of you, and I think this is for some of you in the room. It means you don't have to fear death anymore. You know the early Christians? They were marked by their fearlessness in the face of extreme suffering and death itself. The early Christians, during the plague, what we came to know eventually as the bubonic plague when hundreds and thousands of people were dying in, Rome, in the Roman society the early Christians were the ones taking care of the sick why? because they didn't fear death let me tell you something, if you don't fear death you don't have to fear anything else in this life I don't know where I, I'm going with this but I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say it's dangerous ground when you have false assumptions about God's activity and you begin to entertain negative feelings that come from those assumptions. Mary, I think, is, is there. 
And so I want, to, I want you to see this as I kind of close this up. Um, not only does the resurrection challenge our false assumptions about God's activity, but um, let, me, let me show you this. The disciples went back to where they were staying. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So the disciples went back. Mary didn't even look in the tomb. She was living under this false assumption that Jesus' body had been stolen. She was weeping and experiencing grief because of this false assumption. Then she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And then she said, well, here's the false assumption. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, so somewhere in that moment of answering the question, uh, she realizes or feels that somebody is behind her. She turns around, and she sees Jesus, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And then Jesus asked her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Yeah, right, Mary. First of all, you think the body was stolen. Now, you think you alone are going to go to where the body is and take his body. Right. You see how weird your thinking gets when you start building your life on false assumptions. All right. So notice that Mary gets the same question twice. Why are you crying? And she starts answering based on her false assumption. But Jesus, Jesus asked the question again. Why are you crying? And then he asked a second question underneath it. Watch this. I love the shift here. He says, why are you crying? And then he goes, who are you looking for? So it's like he's saying, Mary, why all the negative emotions? I want to take you into your feelings. Let's, let's, let's figure out what you're feeling. He doesn't deny the fact that Mary feels sad. But then he asks the underlying question, which is what? Who are you really looking for? In other words, Mary, I know that underneath your sadness is a search for a person. And what you're looking for, Mary, see, Mary thought all she needed to help her get, off, go, get away from the sadness, all she needed was more information. Tell me where the body is. But Jesus says, no, what you need is not more information. What you need, Mary, is intimacy. And so what does Jesus do? He calls her name, Mary. And at that moment, Mary turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher, but it's more than just teacher. It would be more like dear teacher. It's the most affectionate term for a teacher. Mary wanted to get her longing fulfilled by gaining more information. Just tell me where they moved the body. But Jesus interrupts her by calling her name and calling her back to intimacy. You see, information will only get you so far. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you that's more than just information sharing. He wants a sharing of your life. That is intimacy. Intimacy will take you way further than information can with Jesus. Okay, so lastly, Jesus is Mary. She says, Rabbi, and then he says this kind of mysterious thing. He says, apparently Mary... Rabboni, and she falls at his feet, and she kind of maybe tries to lay hold of him. Like, you know, let me hug you. <laughs> and Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And so Mary went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now what is up with that? That's a little mystifying statement by Jesus because in the other gospels, Jesus has no problem with people touching him. What's he doing here? He says, don't, what he's actually saying to Mary is not don't touch me, but he's saying don't, the idea is don't detain me. Don't hold on to me in a way that holds me back. And partly this is because Jesus wants Mary to get on with the, with the task of spreading the news. But it's also, now listen, it's also because Jesus wants Mary and the other disciples to know that his promise still stands. Now let me explain. In the book of John, Jesus connects this whole ascending to the Father in, past, um, in previous passages in John with his sending of the Holy Spirit. So he has already told them in previous chapters that I need to go away, guys. I need to ascend into heaven. Because only when I leave can the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit come. That's the idea, right? So when Jesus talks about, I'm, don't hold me back because I'm ascending to the Father, what he's saying is, remember all those promises I said to you about the Holy Spirit coming? Do you remember when I told you I would not leave you as orphans, that I will send the, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit to you? Remember when I told you guys that, that you would do even greater things than these because I'd go to my Father? You see that language? Remember when I told you I've, I've got a place that I'm prepared for you? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. you know, and, and I'm going to send the counselor. He's going to lead you and guide you. And he's going to uh, remind you of every, everything that I've taught you. Remember that? That is all contingent on my going and ascending to the Father. And when he says to Mary, don't hold me back because I'm, what he's saying is, that promise is about to be fulfilled. The promise of the Holy Spirit that I've been talking to you about up to this point, I'm getting ready to fulfill it. The promise of God stands over your life, my friends. And watch this. Out of all the good things that God has promised you, there is no better promise than the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm setting you up for Pentecost. Some of you all are like, I love what Pastor said. I love what, you know, my life group leader taught this, this, this week. I love all these, these wonderful things that I'm learning from Scripture. And then you go out and you try to obey and you fall flat on your face time and time again. It's because the Christian life was not meant to be lived in the power of yourself. It was meant to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, man. Now, here's the cool part about the Spirit. We emphasize the Spirit, but when you get into who the Holy Spirit is, you're going to find that he's always emphasizing Jesus. Always emphasizing Jesus. So whatever promises God has spoken over you, the best and greatest promise over you is that his Spirit is upon you, his Spirit is in you, and you can receive ongoing and overflowing outpourings and infillings of the Holy Spirit throughout your life. You need it to live the Christian life. Amen? Live into the promise of the Holy Spirit. Nothing can compare. So tell the person next to you, stop clinging to the past. 
the good past and the bad past. Let go of false assumptions and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit afresh. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.